You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. Before we begin, a little bit of housekeeping. I want to make you aware of a new venture that I'm involved in, uh, which is called Letter, letter.wiki. And Letter is a social media website slash app where you can write public letters to another person. So you and a friend can both sign up and you can write a correspondence to each other. For example, if you want to discuss a more controversial topic where you're on of different opinions, or if you're having an argument with someone on Twitter and you want to take it off Twitter out of that kind of gladiatorial atmosphere where everybody is commenting and liking and you can only throw out little 280 character remarks at each other and want to have a little more space to discuss, then Letter is a good platform for you. If you have someone you'd like to write to, you can sign up together, or you can write to someone already signed up. Or if you have a topic you'd like to discuss, anything from identity politics to Star Wars to Indian cookery, these are some of the ones that people have already been discussing, then let me know and I will try to matchmake you with a correspondent. You can share the letters to Twitter or to Facebook. And we will also be publishing a Letter Exchange of the Week in ARIO magazine. And you can find the first Letter Exchange of the Week in ARIO was published yesterday on human cultural evolution, conversation between Massimo Piliucci and David Sloan Wilson. If you have any questions about Letter or you'd like any help with signing up or finding a pen pal, then just contact me in the comments here or DM me on Twitter. Iona Italia, or send me an email, iona.italia at gmail. So without further ado, my guest this week is Melissa Chen. Melissa is the Managing Director of Ideas Beyond Borders. Born and raised in Singapore, she came to the US for her education and decided to stay for the civil liberties. Melissa has degrees in computational biology and was a researcher for several years before deciding to start Ideas Beyond Borders with Faisal Al-Mutar. Her tiger parents must be so so thrilled about the fact that she's not using her science degrees. Welcome, (laughs) Melissa. Thanks, Iona. Thanks for having me on. So um, I know that you grew up in Singapore and... I'm intrigued as to how that, how growing up in Singapore has fed into your interest in in universal liberal humanist values, in free speech and human rights. And I know that you felt that Singapore has, in some ways, is lacking in some basic human rights and, and freedoms that you would like to see. Can you tell me more about your, your upbringing? 
tell me about your family and what it was like growing up in Singapore. Um, yeah, you, you probably hear a lot more about this country in the news today. It's it's you know known for being a very stable, prosperous little island in um, Southeast Asia, and uh, a lot of people get exposure uh, to it through well these days pop culture. I think the movie. <laughs> the, the, the movie Crazy Rich Asians, which was based on a best-selling book, kind of put it on the pop cultural map. And in part, I remember watching parts of it and, and thinking to myself, wow, like this, uh, certain scenes were almost like a documentary for, you know, for me. Like the part where there was a, a scene of of women, the, the mother of the main character, the male lead at least, in, in this movie was doing a Bible study with all her fellow Bible study group mates, church aunties who were all gathering in a house and they all had their Bibles open while tea was being served with crumpets. I remember that my mom used to be very active in the Methodist church and I was raised in that environment. I had gone to Catholic schools for my primary education and then for secondary school and tertiary had, had gone to Christ, uh, a Methodist private school. So I've always been in this Christian evangelical bubble and also attended church every Sunday, you know, like a, like a very, like an obedient, the obedient kid that I was, but it was not without a lot of questioning on my part. At the end of the day, Singapore, I, I'm not just, you know, somebody that grew up in Singapore was, I'm also like, it, it's also a consequence of time, right? Because I think growing up in Singapore today with social media and, and and open access to a lot of things makes makes it very different. I, I grew up at a time, and I'm going to date myself here. I think you can sort of tell how someone grew up with the ecosystem in which somebody grew up in by asking them what phone they first had, like what kind of cell phone they first had. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was one of those bricks, like Nokia brick phones that you could play Snake on. So, uh-huh. you know, there was dial-up internet. You know, I think that my first foray into it was using dial-up internet to get on MIRC the internet relay chat. And at the time, really, the only sort of avenues where I was getting information from was whatever books I had, the education system in Singapore, which is a very rote learning-based system. um, And the curriculum is very much centralized by the government. And in some cases, the private schools have some leeway in interpreting what what they teach and what they don't teach. So for example... You know, I actually did the GCE A levels in in biology and wasn't really taught uh, evolutionary biology properly. When when the when the teacher when the lecturer told us about natural selection and and you know uh, Darwin's theory in general, uh, there was a caveat that that this was only just a theory. Mm-hmm. And and <laughs> outside reading just wasn't in, in, encouraged by the school system because all the syllabi was actually just kind of predetermined by the ministry and by your school. So, and I didn't have the internet, right? So all of these things combined and then the religious sort of aspect back home, I remember my mom actually, she threw away my Harry Potter books because witchcraft was just satanic. Um, so that was the kind of environment I, I grew up in in Singapore. Was It, it was kind of a intersectional, you know, suppression almost, right? Because you had religion, you had school, and then I had my, my mom in the church. And so all of these played together. And then obviously, Singapore is not known at all for 
having a, a culture or a legal ecosystem of free expression. Um, there are very distinct out-of-bound zones in terms of speech, especially public speech. Also, freedom of the press is very limited. Uh, people kind of ignore this because Singapore is so prosperous and is seen as a very business-friendly you know, place to, to you know, work and start things. But, but freedom of the press is, is almost, it's very non-existent. Hmm. It's is there pre-publication censorship, or is it more that you will you will not be hired if you write certain kinds of things as a journalist, or is it the case that if you publish certain things, you could be fined or imprisoned? Um, there are several ways that there are like you know basically many tiers of censorship, but um, in part, like I think one of the main ones is that there was a newspaper and printing press act. So basically all publications in Singapore, and again, the, this is pre-internet, um, they require a government license. So the minister basically has the discretion to grant and withdraw press license as, as he seems fit. So, you know, there are basically two companies that owned, that had owned and, and circulated newspapers, radios, TV stations. So that y- you can sort of see that as like, um, state media mm-hmm. and, um, you need to get a special license to even start um, a foreign publication. And because it, they, they tend to always see that as somehow interfering with domestic politics. So, for example, the Far Eastern Economic Review um, is actually banned in Singapore after it published an interview with the opposition politician. And you have also the Broadcasting Act, and that censors all broadcasts, media and internet and things like that. Um, and then you have Sedition Acts, uh, which criminalizes any act, speech, words, or publication that would incite disaffection against the government. And, you know, other, other laws also prevent people from fomenting, um, I guess, any hate or division among the different races and the different ethnicities, because Singapore is truly um, a multicultural society, and one in which I would say is extremely stable. There is something to be said about that, how the country has achieved that, because Almost elsewhere in the region, you do have these same groups, the Christians, the Muslims, the Buddhists, fighting. Uh, Singapore's been able to maintain the harmony for a long time, since the 1960s. Mm. Yeah, I found it very... Um, I, I noticed how multicultural it is when I was there. When was it? When was it that you... Quite a while ago now. I guess about 20 years ago. And I stayed with friends who were um, living in an HDB, so they had these... I mean, you know what these are, but for anybody who doesn't know, it was sort of four skyscrapers around an open air courtyard. And everybody would go down into the courtyard in the evening to have dinner. And they had what they called a hawker center. So it was um, little stands, individual stands where people were cooking and selling food then each person in your group could go and order their food from a different stand and they would bring the food over to the table where you were sitting. And uh, so there was a kind of communal eating atmosphere at night, in the evenings, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, Singapore is very communitarian, very communitarian. And, And what you just described, HDB, stands for Housing Development Board which is basically uh, public housing. So these buildings and these um, sort of satellite towns that you're describing are built and designed by the Singapore government. 
uh, urban planning is, is done very well there. And uh, the government therefore plays a very significant role in land use regulation and, and urban planning. So, you know, people that look at the country and think, okay, this is a very, you know, by all measures, sort of fiscally conservative country because there's very almost non-existent welfare and low taxes, tend to ignore the fact that the government does have a very heavy-handed role in um, the economy in a way that Li- like libertarians yeah. would just but reject. in a way that seems to be uh, that side of things seems to be very positive the housing the infrastructure I think so. the way the everything is organized so well runs so smoothly it's so easy to get around you feel so safe at all times of day and night I felt safe everywhere in Singapore but behind the scenes is is this severe restriction on free speech yeah that's right and uh, the culture or the atmosphere that it creates is that eventually people start to self-censor. And uh, that's the you know, environment I grew up in. And I, I always knew I was different in the sense of I was the kid who always created trouble in, in my Sunday school classes for asking questions that would make the teacher embarrassed because he couldn't answer it. The, there was also a culture of you're not allowed to ask questions because dialectic kind of, dis, you know, that kind of discourse wasn't encouraged in a way because of the top-down approach to pedagogy rather than the Socratic method. And um, all of this kind of added up. In school, I was, you know, a troublemaker because I asked too many questions in, in Sunday school as well. So I kind of knew then that I needed to immigrate to if I if I wanted to ha- have a chance to open my mind and and um, be around people or in an environment that that I could do these things that I could ask questions freely and just kind of be myself. So I did everything I could to plan for this. Um, I had to apply to university in the states, and not many people do that because Singapore is under the British system. And it's just so much easier to to go to either a Commonwealth country like you know Australia or whatever, or or go to the UK to pursue your education. Um, so I decided to go to the US because I I knew that was the place that I mean had the least restrictions on speech, and and this was actually you know not something to be afraid of, but embraced. It was enshrined in the Constitution, so that was how much of a priority it was to the United States and. That's specifically why I, I chose to, to go to, to come here to study. So you left Singapore um, to to study uh, to do your undergraduate, or was it your PhD when you left Singapore? Oh no, I I left when I was eighteen, so right after you know when you would do your GCEA levels, and um, I I came to the US to basically do a bachelor. So. I mean, that is when, you know, I was actually really looking forward to a liberal arts education because um, in Singapore, education is very path dependent. So you, you basically start specializing very early because they start streaming you based on your abilities and aptitude. Mm. Um, my criticism of that is that it starts too early. Um, you know, by the time you are 10 years old, what you, how you did in, in an exam when you were 10 determined what you could do when you were 12. and then you know, when you were 15 and 16. And that is, it leaves very little room, wiggle room for, for any sort of late, bloom, late bloomers to kind of, you know, 
change their minds or or figure out what they really like in life and 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 it's very unforgiving the system so that's why I wanted to do liberal arts I mean I had been specializing in math and science for a long time in uh, Singapore because that's what my aptitude tests said that I should do and so I by the time I was 18 I had not studied history or philosophy or literature so I was very lacking in the humanities department. I knew I enjoyed writing and thinking, but because the the education system was so demanding, I had to put all my time into just math and science. And so I got good at it, but but I wanted more. And that's why I came to the US and specifically chose to to do liberal arts in, in a liberal arts kind of setting. And the reason I ended up with a science degree was was because of very, you know, pragmatic purposes. I you know, no one will hire. Uh, I knew the job market, what the job market was, and and also for immigration purposes, to be able to uh, stay in America, you needed to get hired right after you graduated. And so, you know, I picked my my area of specialization um, on, on several counts, and one of them was just sheer pragmatic need. Um, and and I chose a, a degree in which. You know, it was kind of the frontier, right? Like gen- the human genome was fully sequenced in 2004. And I got to America um, around 2005. So I was kind of on that, on that cusp where um, things were so new that even institutionally, the, that degrees to prepare people for analyzing genomes and working in the genomic space just did not exist yet. So I had to kind of make my own degree up, which is exciting because you could never have done something like that in a very rigid education system. This is one of the things I love about how flexible the American system is. You know, I, I loved and was so passionate about something that I could, I mean, I remember going through the process of just trying to make my own degree up. It didn't exist at the time. And I had to basically mm-hmm. take random classes from, you know, linear algebra to molecular biology, cancer biology, and things like that. So I was putting together sort of uh, strands of classes that just did not exist in a, in a, in a degree path for the first time. And, and um, I eventually made my degree up, and it was called quantitative biology. So I was able to take advantage of that and um, go into research. And one of the highlights of my life was actually working at the Broad Institute which is a genomics institute at um, joint institute between MIT and Harvard, though now it's, I think, independent. But almost every, you know, genome-related discovery um, announcement kind of came out of this hallowed institute, and it was so fun working for them. How wonderful. And you had a, what was your specific PhD topic that you were working on for them? So I never finished my, I never actually finished my PhD. Mm, um, but you began a PhD. But my, my research, yeah, but my research topic was actually on um, bacterial transcript no, transcriptomics. Um, and it sounds very uh, scary and long, but basically transcriptomics, you know, genome is the study of, of DNA of an entire organism, right? Mm-hmm. Transcriptomics is the study of an organism's transcriptome, which is the sum of all its RNA transcripts. So central dogma of biology was that DNA makes RNA, RNA makes protein. Um, of course, there are 
you know, different ways that flows now. But in general, we would study a particular cell or tissue or organisms um, RNA, which what that tells you is what genes were turned on at what time. So there was a very temporal aspect to it. It was a very spatial aspect to it. And your transcriptome's changing all the time. It depends on the cell type, right? So your liver cell and your brain cell has uh, have the same DNA, um, and but what they what they what's different about them is that their RNA transcripts are totally different. That's where gene expression comes in. So. There were a lot of technical challenges to that. When I first got into the field, it was very young, very new. And I mean, I can definitely, I have stories, like I'm not old and I have a lot of stories about how back in my day, you know, we used to extract DNA using cesium chloride ultracentrifugation and now it's just kits. You know, it's, it's, it's the whole, it's an equivalent of the story. Ah, back in my day, I used to walk to school and now look at you youngsters, but this is just how fast the field moves. I remember mm. using machines that were the size of refrigerators, and now we're sequencing exomes on these toaster-sized benchtop machines. Um, so it's very exciting to to be a part of all all of that. But ultimately, because I think I wasn't remember, I, I chose you know I chose to do science not based on something that was exactly what I wanted to do. It was just what was functional, what, what I needed to do, and I was good at it. Mm. But sometime in 2014, when I was still there, I met a very young Iraqi refugee who had come to, he was giving a talk um, at the Kennedy School, I believe, at Harvard. And I, I had sort of known of him kind of running in the same circles online. And I thought, you know what? I kind of want to attend this. It's totally outside of my wheelhouse, but I was always interested in politics. People always ask me, okay, if you didn't do science, you didn't have to worry about a green card or getting employed after graduation, what would you have done? And frankly, I would have I wanted to be a journalist. That was what I wanted to do above all else. I mm. loved I loved geopolitics. I I loved being able to sort of be a jack of all trades in in a sense of, you know, looking into this particular story and investigating that and just writing it up and just going down whatever rabbit hole wanted you, you, you know, wanted to explore. That was the romantic view of journalism and I wanted to go into it. But back in like maybe 2008, it was very clear what was happening to the landscape I mean, with blogs. Everyone was a journalist. So, you know, you had foreign bureaus starting to close and, and um, the business models of, of traditional media was simply not working out in the new digital landscape. So I never, I never studied it for that reason. And uh, glad actually that, that I didn't pursue journalism as a degree. But eventually caught up, you know, you have existential crisis because at some point the humdrum of research, you know, where I'm just like pipetting and double pipetting, multi-channel pipetting small amounts of liquids from one tube to another and and waiting for centrifugations, I'm just sitting there in the lab, like, what am I doing with my life? So in a way, Faisal came at the very, you know, the right time, the right place at the right time. And I sat in his talk, and he was talking about a um, topic that was very close to his heart, about extremism and, and the geopolitics of the Middle East. And I, I, was, I was blown away. Mm. So I organized the dinner for him. Um, in Cambridge, invited some people from the community. A lot of people came 
Um, and it was, that was the first time we met in person. And, uh, you know, after that, he, he was, he said to me, I run a page uh, on, on secular humanism um, that he started when he was just a teenager in Baghdad. And I'd like you to run it. It has 400,000 uh, followers on Facebook. And I'd like you to help me find content, post it, sort of build it up to a point where, you know, it became a page where people could discuss politics, issues, religion, and things like that. So um, he, he gave me the keys to his page. And that was how I, you know, kind of first started working with him. Obviously, it was just, I was just managing, you know, something on social media. But it, it really provided me with a, a really nice reprieve when I had nothing to do when I was waking, waiting for like a, a heat bath incubation for my samples. I would be posting things and reading on. So I, I felt like I was doing a bit of that, you know, journalism that I wanted to do, but never got a chance to. Hmm. Um, so that was how I, I, I first met him and then and, and started going down this, this path that was very different from what I had been trained to do academically. Was an intellectual love at first sight, kind of, and and I think you know it helped that we had the same sense of humor, um, very dark, but and very inappropriate when we're on our we weren't in private. But <laughs> you're f please feel free to be inappropriate here if you wish to be. <laughs> <laughs> I have no political. I think your audience is. Required. I think your audience is very different, though. <laughs> um, yes, possibly. I mean, I had a similar feeling when I encountered um, Helen that I felt like, uh, you know, here is somebody um, who is doing something that I that I agree with and admire and with whom I feel intellectually on the same page and with whom I also really enjoy working and get along well. I would say both of you. I, I, had, I had the same um, reaction to both of you. I mean, especially, you know, reading your, your work, your writings on Ariel. Um, and also your, your Twitter feed, like it's something that I think, you know, I've had to emulate someone it's, it's, it's your, your feed and your approach. I, I think it's, it's very balanced. Um, and, and your, your, I don't know. I just love the way you write. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. I feel good about my writing, but I do think I'm rather, I'm not the best user of Twitter. But I, I don't want to get into my own problems and issues right now. <laughs> I think we will discuss that soon. I'm going to be um, having a whole uh, conversation about online discourse. And um, I think we'll talk about that then. But uh, thank you so much. That's, I feel that's totally undeserved, but I will attempt to live up to it. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I wish is that this was two for coffee because... I'm, I'm much more in team team coffee than team tea, and in fact, the the way the way it's called, like the title, two for tea, it sounds like it has to be said in a British accent. It just does. <laughs> two for tea, like it, you know, it just doesn't work out in any other accent. Well, you know, I wanted to give it a different, give this podcast a different title, and um, but Helen was absolutely insistent. <laughs> um, and you know she is a fundamentalist when it comes to tea. A fun. Uh, oh, um, I a, know. Trust tea, me, tea hardest. Yes, as you have noticed. Yes, um, I, I have offend. I have offended her with <laughs> with my tea making methods. Um, you microwave the tea. Is that the issue? <laughs> 
Yes. So <laughs> one time I, I basically posted, you know, a, a tweet that said something like, um, I just, I, I just made tea by microwaving water in the, in the, uh, and, and getting it to the super boil status and then just putting the, the tea bag in. And I said something like Christopher Hitchens would be rolling in his grave if he, if he knew this. And there was a, I posted a link to an article in Slate that Christopher actually wrote about how to make the perfect cup of tea. So I know that he, you know, if he were alive, he would be absolutely offended by that. Yeah, he um, would be aghast. <laughs> yeah. And Helen responds, and it was the funniest thread because she was so aghast at, at <laughs> how anyone could, could do something like that. Um, to to her national treasure, um, which, by the way, was culturally appropriated from our part of the world, and by our I mean you and me, because you know I know tea came from India, um, came from China originally. No, I mean the plant is uh, Chinese. originally yes, but then the British got it from India because that's where they were growing that stuff. Right, they brought it over to India. Um, I heard also that when the British came to Sri Lanka, they basically. Uh, tore out some of the coffee plantations that were there. And coffee, I think, is actually, I don't know where coffee is from, but I don't know that coffee is indigenous to Sri Lanka, but it was there earlier than tea. And they removed the coffee plantations and now there are tea plantations instead. And a lot of people in Sri Lanka who I knew, who I knew when I was living in Lanka had um, actually coffee in in their gardens or on their terraces. They had a few coffee plants for their own use. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. It grows it grows that. very well there, but it's it had something to do with the convenience of the harvesting, um, which now I, I won't go into because I'm going to talk a load of bollocks if I do, because I don't remember correct what the history of it was. <laughs> but I know that they symbolically replaced the, the coffee with tea, which I'm sure would please Helen. And I gather that there was a an experiment at one point um Peter Boghossian made uh, did a blind tea tasting where he made some of the tea with microwaved and some of the tea with kettle boiled water. And even though Helen was unable to tell the microwave from the <laughs> kettle boiled tea, <laughs> um, that's is, what I wanted to do. I didn't know it was already done. Yeah, unfortunately, it's already been done, and um, uh, Helen is just unwilling to face reality. <laughs> She is completely irrational about this. And actually uh, I my I love that she can't respond right now. That's the best part. <laughs> yeah, so we can have a we can say whatever we like because she's unable yep. to <laughs> not here to stick up for herself. Exactly. And my I don't want to go on about tea for too much, uh, too long, but my ex-husband was also a scientific researcher. So I know about all the things that you're talking about, about putting experiments on to cook and then waiting them for them to be ready <laughs> and having a lot of downtime in the lab and endless exactly. pipetting and um, centrifuging. and um, Yeah, you get carpal tunnel syndrome from, <laughs> from the multi-channel pipettes because they actually require a lot of effort to operate. And sometimes the suction just isn't right, you know. Mm. So. <laughs> um, yeah, pipette wrist. Um, <laughs> And uh, better than mouth pipetting, I, I'm definitely, you know, at least, I, at least I can say I'm not that old that I was mouth pipetting. But I remember my professors telling me about the era in which that had to be done. Oh gosh, yeah. And working in a microbiology lab, you would be mouth pipetting, you know, gonorrhea cultures. Like that's scary. 
In any case, he used to get into this argument here in Argentina, my ex, um, about mate, which is uh, mate. Um, yes, is um, uh, Ilex paraguinensis um, mm -hmm. is the botanical name. It's the only type of holly which is not uh, poisonous, and um, it's it's native to Paraguay, Brazil, um, and that area. It's tropical. It's a tropical plant uh, which we make tea out of. And there is a whole very elaborate mate tea making and tea drinking ritual, which is way too elaborate to go into here. But there are a lot of rules about how you drink mate and how you serve mate to other people. It's like the Japanese tea ceremony. It's our, our um, <laughs> South American version. But one of the rules is that you should not use boiling water. You should use water that is at 80 degrees Celsius and our kettle, our electric kettle here at home, has a a little red light comes on when it goes goes to eighty degrees, and it shows you a display comes up saying it's now at eighty. So that if you're making mate rather than coffee or whatever, you can switch it off when it gets to eighty. It warns you. Um, and that is very precise. Yes, and my eggs would just he would just boil the water all the way and then just let it cool and then make the mate so he wasn't pouring boiling water over the leaves he was pouring 80 degree water over the leaves but that had previously boiled and cooled that devotion is is very spectacular in fact we would put it in a thermos we would fill the thermos almost all the way up and then add some cold and then it would be the correct temperature but the argentines did not like this at all because that water had already boiled and therefore you can't use it for mate once it's gone past the 80 degree mark. Even though it's pulled back down to 80 degrees and um, Oliver uh, was constantly trying to persuade them that water is not path dependent. Um, <laughs> it's not like chocolate. You can't heat chocolate to 80 degrees and then cool it. It's going to be different from how it was before, but water will not right. be different. But exactly. They, yes. I mean, there were some quite heated arguments, including with other scientists. They just did not, <laughs> did not believe him. Um, okay, unless you have a degree in thermodynamics, <laughs> I, I don't think their opinion's valid. I think even someone with a degree in thermodynamics, but who was Argentine, who was very patriotically <laughs> Argentine, would still <laughs> argue this case. The water must be, it mustn't have experienced the state of boiling <laughs> to be suitable for mate drinking. Um, anyway, I want to go back, get back to Faisal, Faisal and the, um, your work with him. So you began working with Faisal um, and... You began, I think, with this secular humanist uh, society or secular humanist group. Is that right? Well, it was, it was basically me helping him to um, run this page that, that mm. he was known for, for starting. And at the time, he was invited to a lot of uh, conferences in the secular circuit. And I had gone to a few with him. But, but we, we never had an organization until... It was 2016, almost at the end um, of it, when, you know, after working um, in a human rights organization, uh, Faisal had amassed enough contacts in the Middle East, and he wanted to do something about a problem that he was speaking about very frequently. Um, you know, he was going around talking about 
extremism or Islamist extremism. And, and he wanted, you know, also just growing up and being a victim of it. He grew up in, under Saddam Hussein, um, under Al-Qaeda later. And, and being a victim of it was, was a very big uh, motivation for him to, to basically say, you know what, I've been talking about this abstractly and, you know, started working for a human rights organization. Let me try to do something about it that I think would be effective. So it wasn't until like maybe, you know, 2016, we started exploring this possibility. And in 2017, when uh, he secured some seed funding, we launched uh, Ideas Beyond Borders. So that's the birth of the organization. It's only been two years old now, but um, we've come pretty far. So tell me, well, I know, but um, for the benefit of listeners, tell me what the organization does and what the thinking is behind it. So, you know, millions of people around the globe are denied access to perspectives and, and knowledge that can inspire and empower. And, you know, these, are, these happen in regions that are, are rife with authoritarianism and extremism. So what we do is we develop and, and implement programs that empower individuals with that kind of knowledge that, that you do find suppressed by regimes, dictatorships, or, you know, the culture around them. And the theory of change is that by encouraging youth um, to think critically about topics ranging from human civil rights to science and reason, that we laid the groundwork uh, for people to, to basically reject ideologies that, that can lead to extremism and sort of give them hope. Mm. So it's basically a form of, you know, how do we instill a culture of pluralism and ideological resistance to dogma? I noticed that one of the main things that you're doing, which I love the idea of, is making uh, specific texts, science, scientific texts and philosophical texts and texts on, on women's rights and on health articles and books available in Arabic. And I think yeah. some also in Farsi and um, Kurdish. Yes, yes. Um, there's some sobering statistics about um, Arabic as, you know, in terms of the language. Less than 1% of the total global online content is in Arabic, even though it's the fifth most spoken language. So roughly 4.5% of the world's population, which is about 420 million people. And Greece actually translates five times more books into Greek than all of the 20 Arab nations combined. So this is very sobering. And if you compare the number of Greek speakers to the number of Arabic speakers, it, it pales in comparison. So there, mm. there clearly is a knowledge deficit. And, and people, you know, if they're not able to, to read about these things in their own language, what good is it? So that's the problem that we've been trying to solve. And we don't just, you know, translate books into Arabic and make them freely available, which is, you know, it's also an economic uh, issue because... Arab publishing, it's, it's the, mar the, the industry is, 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 has been suffering for a while. Um, you know, the entire Arab world now publishes about like 15,000 books annually, which is as many as just Penguin Random House does in one mm. year. Mm. And, um, you know, once you have war, like civil war and revolutions, the, the, the market for, for, for actual books drops. So after the Egyptian, you know, the 2011 revolution, Egypt's market, publishing market, dropped by 70%. So 
they're plagued by all these all these problems. And uh, we decided, let's make this digital. So I saw two statistics from from your website that really struck me, and which I feel that there there's a very suggestive possible correlation that is there. The first one is so I'm reading from the Ideas Beyond Borders website, which I'll put a link to obviously in the show notes. Only 0.6% of online content is available in Arabic. In contrast, Arabic is the fourth most spoken language among internet users. There are more books translated into Spanish in a single year than have been translated into Arabic in 1,000 years. And then juxtaposed against that, you offer this statistic. According to the 2016 United Nations Arab Human Development Report, the Middle Eastern and North African region, MENA region, is home to only 5% of the world's total population, but it produces 45% of the world's terrorist attacks, 58% of the world's refugees, 69% of the world's battle-related deaths. So looking at those two things side by side, of course, I can't, you know, there, I can't prove or say for sure that there's a connection, but it seems at least suggestive that we have people who are very deprived of reading matter or deprived of the kind of richness and breadth of literature that we are used to in the West and as English speakers, and also live in a region with so much conflict. Of course, this is a is a partly chicken and egg problem, but it's, it's correct. That's exactly it. It is a chicken and egg problem, and and it's not just you know, it's not just extremism. You're looking at an entire region that does lag behind in terms of scientific or even academic output. It, it ranks low on the Freedom Index, which tracks democracy and, and political freedom. Um, so there are all these indications uh, about some sort of correlation between between these two facts. And, and in some ways, you know, we look to the past. That's why we actually named this program Bayt al-Hikmah 2.0. Bayt al-Hikmah, which is the Arabic word that translates directly to the House of Wisdom, was initially founded as a private library in the 8th century in Baghdad. And the time between this 8th century to like maybe the 13th or 14th century was, was known as the Islamic Golden Age. And this particular library was, was very symbolic for us. And that's why we wanted to call our digital library that we're building, Beit al-Hikmah 2.0, just to indicate that it's digital. But back, way back in, in, during that time, the House of Wisdom was, was a place where scholars from around the world came. And it was also a translation institute where almost all the secular work from the Greek canon was actually collected and translated. This established, obviously, a huge influence on, on Arab thought. And some academics actually think that if not for the actions of, of the Arab translators, that the Enlightenment period would never have happened in Europe. Mm. So it's, it's really fascinating in terms of also how during that time when you had such a tolerance for different ideas, that the Arab world was also... Uh, going through a great intellectual growth. And, and, and a lot of things were discovered there. Astronomy developed, uh, algebra, and uh, all these intellectual traditions. So there is, there is something to be said about 
sort of being open intellectually to ideas and and results in terms of innovation, education, and and just more freedom or more rights for for people. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what we're we hope. It's a very long game, obviously, but there is a need given you know the statistics that that you just read out and the ones that I have as well in terms of just the language flows. In terms of Wikipedia, for example, I, I think it's 10%. When we started this program called Wikipedia, sort of Wikipedia Beyond Borders to plug that gap because 10% of English Wikipedia is in Arabic. So it's so hard for us to imagine here in the West, right? Like mm-hmm. imagine all you ever knew, like just the totality of, of pages you have access to on this global encyclopedia that all of us use, just randomly blot out 90% of it. And actually, maybe it's not that random because it's very specific what pages don't exist. Blot out 90% of them. And now that is your world. That 10% of, of whatever Wikipedia we have access to is the world that someone in, say, Libya has access to. You know? And, and what, what if there was no page for, for certain tenets of feminism or science? Quite tellingly, for example, evolutionary biology, any page kind of related to that was either truncated or just missing. So to date, we've actually translated all the pages related to logical fallacies, cognitive bias, and even women scientists and and evolutionary biology. Mm, That's fantastic. I was reading about what people often call the Islamic Enlightenment, which I think is kind of a misnomer because although many of those involved were Muslims, it wasn't a it wasn't in any sense an Islamic enlightenment. In fact, it was later the Mullahs who sort of shut it down. Yes. I was reading Frederick Starr's book, Lost Enlightenment, which I'll reference in the show notes. And one of the things that made that enlightenment possible is that the epicenters where it was taking place, first in modern-day Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan in that region, that was a, a cross a literal crossroads. People were passing through on their way from Europe into into East Asia and India, traders and merchants. And that is a large part of how it became such a vibrant scholarly community and artistic community. And in a sense that the so those places geographically have become a backwater, but having the internet allows us to make a new kind of silk road. Exactly. I think uh, Miriam Namazi actually had this amazing quote, which I, which I totally agree with, about how social media for the Middle East is basically like the Gutenberg press for Europe. Mm. And I think that's, that's actually really accurate because the, you know, the reason why we actually chose to do Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, first, that was the first book we acquired and the first book we started translating it very long and has a lot of data and graphs, so it's taking a long time. The reason why you know we wanted to to do that book was because the principles espoused in in Alignment Now um, and how it's improved the world um, seemed to be really important to us. So you know we wanted to be basically Steven Pinker's ambassador to the Middle East in terms of the idea the ideas that that he was promoting. Because if you know if the question for us is so how do we optimize and share and share these um, ideas? Like it's one thing to just translate them, 
but how do you actually distribute? That's another that's another issue. And in that part of the world now, you have the penetrance of, of cell phones is pretty high. So why not do it digitally? We we have this medium that that can be so easily you know that can so easily disseminate information. We might as well adapt. And and beyond that, why not produce videos? Uh, you know, attention spans have shortened. Mm. So we we've done little books book summary videos. So the entirety of Stephen Pinker's book, for example, Sam Harris's book on free will and lying, have been condensed to just two minutes. And, mm-hmm. and we all of that's in Arabic. We have both an Arabic version and an English versions, and we're uploading that all in our library. Do you have statistics on how many how many people are downloading from your site? Well, our library site officially, I mean, it, the assets are already loaded up, but we haven't officially launched the library site, even though you can get the books right now on our website. But of course, we can track everything. We know for sure, though, that we are getting about 4 million, more than 4 million overall views for our Wikipedia articles. And on, on Facebook, the, the page that we've built has about you know 130,000 follow, followers and growing. And in terms of total reach, about a million so we're, you know, the target is Arab-speaking youth, maybe the ages of fifteen to thirty-nine. That's, you know, who we're hoping to to reach in terms of our our content. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, I there were a couple of questions on Twitter that I wanted to address, even though these wouldn't have been my own questions. But several people have asked about the proportion of people within the Middle East, within the MENA region, who are literate. There's the average rate, but then there's also, I think, I, I, don't, I don't know how useful that is. I think it's more useful to look at the breakdown per country. Um, okay. and, and actually, you know, it's, it really depends. So like in some places like the Gulf region uh, and, and Jordan, for example, it's almost 100%. In Jordan, it's 98%. And if you look at the countries that have lower literacy rates, they're the ones that have been very much affected by recent wars. And so Yemen, I think, has the lowest one. They're about at like just barely over 50% literacy rate. But it varies anywhere between 50% to the almost 100% that you see in the Gulf region and in um, Jordan's very high. So, you know, people definitely can read, but read in Arabic. But but that's why we're also doing audiobooks um, mm-hmm. because, because people can definitely, even if you couldn't read, let's say in Yemen, you couldn't read, you can listen. And this would yes. be more conversational material. And the other thing that somebody said, I don't know if this is, I think this might be bollocks, as Twitter comments sometimes are, but they said that there were so many, uh, the different dialects of Arabic were so different that even in written Arabic, people from different countries couldn't read the same Arabic. Is that is there any truth to that? Not, not really. I think... Um... There's modern standard Arabic in which most texts are read, and Egyptian Arabic is, is probably the most widely understood dialect of Arabic. So, so we tend to hire, for example, Egyptian Arabic voiceovers, subtitling in all of our material. Mm. And that's just purely a result of the fact that Egypt was, was kind of the center for a lot of uh, media. And, and so... You know, people in Morocco say or at least could understand Egyptian Arabic because they were the ones broadcasting and and creating media and spreading that around around the MENA region. Right, but there's a standard. There's basically a standard written there Arabic. Is. Yeah, it's called that um, all MSA. Arabic speakers would understand. Correct. That, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's called MSA. That's what I thought too, but I just thought I would I would double check. 
And what's what's really interesting is, you know, beyond that, we we also have about 120 translators across the region. So they these are young people who are interested in in science and exploring all these ideas, but but they're also interested in being part of like a bigger movement. So there is mm. some pride to it. And so, you know, we, we actually certify our translators too. We don't just pay them, uh, but we also certify them. And, and for them, it's, it's, it's a matter of pride about restoring, you know, their part of the world to the, glo- the past glories in a way. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, what, what was happening during the French Enlightenment with the thinkers who met regularly in, in, in clandestine salons that were run by the Baron Dielbach back in the day. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Um, but when they, when, when they used to meet and, and work on the uh, encyclopedia, which, which was at the time kind of heretical. And, mm. and in many ways, these young translators remind me of this early movement and and you know you were speaking earlier about this islamic enlightenment i think i think that's what that's where this effort will lead to i think it was a missed enlightenment it was terminated prematurely by both internal and external forces the house of wisdom specifically was was sacked by the mongols and and many young people today after living through so much war um terrorism they're, they're tired of this. They're very tired and very skeptical of, you know, dogma and, and want to rise above it and do something about it. So we're tapping into that as well because that's how you sustain a movement. You have to make them feel like it's not just about producing books. It's about being part of a movement, a wider movement. Yeah, it's an, it's an online community. And there are two things that really struck me when I was reading through your material on the website which I think are both very, very useful approaches. And one is that there's a lot of, there are a lot of de-radicalization efforts and people, wonderful people like Dia Khan, who are reaching out to people who are already in the grip of extremist ideologies. And Dia has worked with both white nationalists and jihadists. And what you are doing is more before extremist ideologies can take root Exactly. It's also not, it's not, it's very non-paternalistic. You're just putting the information out there, making it available to them, and then they can read and make their own minds up. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the difference between, you know, in, in terms of healthcare approaches, between like interventionist healthcare when you already have a disease and you go to see a doctor, you try to do something about it versus preventative healthcare. It's, mm. it's really about this... Uh, you know, you have to see extremism as a spectrum of beliefs. It's not just simply a destination. And you could hold, ex- you know, increasingly more extremist positions on this spectrum until you get to a point where there's a point in, in which it crosses over into action, in which it's join a, join a group, um, you know, conduct violence. Right. And so it's much easier to, to inoculate people than than actually trying to convince them whilst, you know, when, when they're already certain about what they believe. And, and I think that's mm. why we're doing what we're doing. I, and I don't think that anyone else is, is trying that. And so far, I would say, in terms of um, why that is the case, 
I, I now that we're Faisal and I and and you know our wonderful staff in New York have been knee deep in it. It's very clear to us why this was not done before. And why why was that? <laughs> because it's so difficult. Or <laughs>、um, it's it's you know I mean, it can go into it's logistical. It is、um, mm. financial.、Mm. You know if you think about you know sort of output versus input. What is the biggest impact we could have with this, the smallest cost? the The publishing industry is very difficult to work with in the sense that there's a lot of, you know, legal sort of intellectual property rights that we have to go around. These contracts with each author, each publisher that we have to negotiate for, because we are asking for the unexclusive digital Arabic translation rights of their works, in which. We are not going to make any money on. We're, we're we're translating them and making them freely available. So all of this really does depend on the generosity of the authors, and I have to say, many of them have come forward. But even though they've given us their their go ahead, the the finer details of the contract itself, what we can produce, derivative videos, that whole legal nightmare to 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 negotiate is is you know we're a country of of rule and law, and we have to follow that. To the T,、mm, so that、course. part is is very time consuming, and and that's actually one of the reasons why you know Faisal was smart enough to pivot and say, "How about Wikipedia? It's Creative Commons. You know, this is freely egalit free egalitarian knowledge that's already available. Why not let's do that? Because it's very you know we don't have to jump through that first legal hurdle, and that has really increased our output." Quite dramatically, and it's also short content. The interesting thing about Wikipedia, though, is that it's very organic. So when we see, you know, for example, the most viewed page that we've translated is a page on Albert Einstein. It's kind of, in Arabic, which which we find really interesting because we can actually track all this all this data and and look at you know organically like like. Which pages are, are are the most highly sought after, most viewed in in Arabic? Oh, how how amazing! Well, I remember hearing that、uh, Dawkins's "The God Delusion" has been downloaded something like ten million or twenty million times in its Arabic translation. Correct. Firstly,、Arabic、it wasn't translation. illicit. Yep, it wasn't illicit translation, so it wasn't officially、mm. endorsed by.、Mm. Uh, well. Dawkins allowed it to happen, and he's not going to go after、yes. the person who did it. But, but you know, they did not. They did not negotiate for the rights prior to having done that. There's a huge black market for books. Um, you know, there are, there are chat groups on Telegram where these censored or subversive texts are being passed around from one one another. Um, because there's no, you know, the in terms of the book market, it's it's like, for example, a book like The God Delusion obviously would not be in Arabic published in these the mark the actual You know markets in these countries, so it says a lot that in a place where the、uh, penalty for atheism is death, that there were ten million people who were curious <laughs> or you know about yes, about these、yes. ideas. So there's a lot of hunger for for narratives, and and if you look at banned book lists in say Kuwait, I believe it's four thousand two hundred books exist on their banned book lists. So it's it's. Forty-four percent, I think, was the last、uh, statistic I saw of people valuing the right to,、uh, or, or, or not valuing, but forty-four percent of the Arab world basically feel like they have any form of free expression. 
Only 44% feel they have any form of free expression. Yeah, across the Arab world. Mm. How could this not be, I mean, how could what you're doing not be a good and important idea? Well, and also the runway is very, the impact that we will see is it's a very long game in a way. So that also makes it very difficult in terms of, you know, for example, like social impact stuff, like people want to see very fast solutions. And if you think of measurement too, it's, it's very difficult if we, you know, want beyond just like downloads or whatever, you know, people will ask us, well, how do you know that this is actually working? And again, how do you measure a negative? How do you measure the number of people not being radicalized, the number of people, you know, rejecting extremist narratives, the number of people not joining these groups? This is very difficult to measure. Of course. I think that with free speech issues, it's always a very long game. And that this is one of the things that people don't often, it's not so much that they don't understand it, but they, I guess they discount too much the the long-term benefits. Yeah. So they want to say, they say, well, you think with free speech, eventually the best ideas will win in the marketplace of ideas. And this is wrong because look, this bad idea is actually gaining in currency or these bad actors who were able to, these demagogues or other bad actors were able to persuade people to their evil point of view through their preaching and speeches and writings, etc. And I see that more as, I guess I am an optimist in the longer term, and I see that that as noise. Those are little kind of blips in the graph Uh that in the short term or medium term, the best ideas needn't necessarily win out. And sometimes very bad people can be very persuasive orators, but the really long-term view is beneficial. I also almost feel as though even if it weren't, it's a it's just such a basic human freedom. Yeah, excess is. Yep, you're right. You know, the, the short slogans that, that, that we, we embrace is making the inaccessible accessible or that we are democratizing knowledge. And I think that's very fundamental. But, mm. you know, you mentioned the free marketplace of ideas because that's what we feel like we have in the, in the West. You know, in, in the Arab world, well, some of these ideas are not even available. So you have the Wahhabi Salafist school of thought that's being, you know, exported and very well financed. But where are the pro-liberty ideas? Where are the pro-civil rights ideas? And and that's what's completely, you know, in terms of books or or articles lacking. So that is why we're 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 focused on that. We spent, you know, so much money, more than eight trillion dollars on the war on terror, right? American taxpayers have spent that. And it's res- mm. resulted in just so much casualties and so much strife. And it, it still, it, it goes on. And, and, you know, and we've marched into countries and tried to bring them liberal democracy and install governments. But somehow it, it didn't take root, right? Why is that? Why was it not working? And, you know, our, our thesis is that it's the mindsets, it's cultural mindsets and, and education that was lacking. I mean, you, people have to value liberal democracy, or else these institutions just have stand no chance at succeeding. And this is where right. the, the long game really is. Mm. So, Melissa, I'm aware that I've taken up a lot of your time already, and I I want to. I do have a 
final question, I guess. But first, I wanted to ask, is there anything that you feel that I haven't asked you or given you a chance to say that you want to make sure our listeners hear that you want to emphasize or mention? Definitely for 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 listeners, especially in the West, that their support is important. I, you know, all this knowledge that we are producing, it's very bottom up. It, it you know, we're not forcing anybody to read it or anything. It's just we're just giving you the chance to have access to it for free. The other exciting thing that we're actually doing is having more sort of um, programs that are more on the ground. So, for example, in post ISIS territories in Iraq, you have universities like the University of Mosul. Uh, several universities in the Anbar province. These used to be strongholds of ISIS. And, you know, these towns have endured a lot of bombings and destruction and uh, just, you know, terrorist tactics that have really scarred the population. So we're now working with these universities to not just have those students that are attending it join our translation program and be part of this movement, but they're also going to be holding classes to discuss the ideas that they've worked on with us. Um, so these are official partnerships that I'm really excited about because it's, that's it's fantastic. like a grassroots workshop type of program that's concrete. It's it's not just pie in the sky, digital, abstract, you know, knowledge between people that are not connected. But now we're having actual programs where they're kind of needed the most because ISIS has been defeated militarily, and these places are, you know, in desperate need of hope and economic empowerment too. In many cases, and we are looking into uh, bringing actually business education in Arabic to some universities in Anbar province, because again, this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, it's really good to know the science and philosophy. That's kind of the the self actualization part of the pyramid. Um, how about how to start a business? How about maybe a tech startup or how to code. These are things that, that, that can empower people in the very short term and will lead to political stability in the very long run. So mm. this work, because it is such a long game and also you know the challenges that, that we're facing, it, it does require a lot of support. And so anyone who, who can, we've always asked people to, to contribute we also want to hear from people also about like what books did they think, you know, changed their minds? Like what should we translate? Would you want to sponsor a particular book? Let's say, you know, we, we have, sometimes we have events and we, on the, on the name tags, we ask people, um, name a title of a book that had one of the biggest impacts on your worldview or that changed your mind about something. And I find that that question is really interesting because it's, it's, it tells you a lot about that person, but it's also a great conversation starter. Mm, I like mm. asking people that. And, you know, it's, that's the kind of um, support that we'd like from, from people that live in the West. It's financial support, but also tell us, you know, what kind of content you think um, should be available in Arabic that, that currently isn't. Mm, wonderful. What kinds of answers have you had from people that have really especially struck you? Well, I, I always, I look at my own intellectual heroes and then I want to ask, I ask them like what book changed, you know, had the biggest impact on their worldview. And their answers are always so fascinating to me because I want to know what influenced the people that I'm influenced by. And so uh, Steven Pinker actually said it was uh, David Deutsch's book. The Beginning of Infinity? Yes. I love that one. book. 
which is apparently available in Arabic. Wonderful. And, and really, it depends on, on the person. When we did an event and we had all the name tags printed with all the book titles, I trolled Faisal because I actually printed a name tag for him. And his the book that most impacted him was The Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. And so he was stuck with a name tag in which people <laughs> were just like, that was your book? That was your choice? Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating question. Mm. I think I would go with um, George Eliot's book, uh, Middlemarch which I think is one of the most compassionate, humane novels I've ever read. It's really, I think that when I I read that, when I first read that and I was 14 or 15, it was the first time that I really understood the concept of empathy. I really fully understood it, what it means to try to put yourself in someone else's position and understand what they're going through. And the way in particular that she deals with some of the characters who do really terrible things are really bad people, but come to realize the error of their ways and the sort of compassion that she has for people's mistakes. That was just, that's just an extraordinary and life-changing book for me. I I wonder if that book is actually available in Arabic. I wonder. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to look into it. Actually, speaking of, I wonder We've also started doing children's books. Um, so we, mm. we've translated Annika Harris's book, I Wonder, which is about teaching children and parents alike the concept of epistemic humility. And we've acquired other, other children's book series as well, and we're currently working on them. Um, for, for me, by the way, like my, because when I had to, to write my, my, the title of the book that, that really changed how I, the way I see the world completely, it's, it's kind of the basic bitch answer, and I don't like it, but um, <laughs> it's, it's The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. That was the mm-hmm. book that, you know, by the time I closed the book, the last, the last, cover, the, the last page, I, I was like, whoa. The way I thought about how life came to be, uh, it, it changed so much. And it even, it even gave me an interest to pursue um, genetics. And, and that's why I actually, you know, of all the sciences I could have majored in, chose to do, to do that. It was, that book was a very big inspiration. But then later on, I read The Theory of Justice by John Rawls. And that, for me, was the sort of empathy, you know, inducing book that, that really opened my mind to, to political philosophy in general. Since we're, I, I, yes, I love um, Rawls's ideas. And we've published quite a lot of articles on Rawls in uh, ARIO. And yes. um, the Rawlsian, a kind of Rawlsian concept of leftism, where mm-hmm. you are, what society would you want to create if you didn't know what kind of position you would have in that society? Yes, the veil of ignorance. That, is, that was a very powerful concept for me, or a framing. And uh, it, it took, yeah, it took reading that to, to even give me the conception of that framework because I never thought about life or about politics in that in that way yeah whilst we're exchanging books I can't resist just naming one more (laughs) which is um, (laughs) recently I read Darren Brown's book uh, Happy which is a a stoic's guide to life and that that's a really extraordinary extraordinary book it's the only self-help book I've ever liked. I guess it's kind of a self-help book, also sort of a history philosophy book, a romp through history. 
I would highly, highly recommend it, especially to anybody who suffers from anxiety or depression. It's an extremely, extremely erudite, fun and helpful book. You know, I I will say one thing that I think in a way, almost all books are self-help books. You know, Mm. like I know it's a very Mm. specific literary category, (laughs) but, but that, I mean, I really, really believe that open books will lead to open minds and that a world of readers is the best world that, that we could create. I agree. I think that's a great place to end on. And thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Ayana. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I just want to give a shout out to uh, our sound engineer, Justin Ward, who is the loveliest, most professional most dedicated, most generous and sexiest man in Canada. (laughs) Thank you so much, Justin. You know it's true. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.